0: Black Cats Run Podcast. I'm Tristan Black-Ingersoll. This is Black Cats Run. Deus Ex Machina. Part 3. At the end of the last episode in this series, we said that we would be talking about what do we do if these models don't work for us, if we're not the high responder. In this episode, we are going to explore what that might mean and what the implications of that could be for us in terms of our strategy to improve and our approach to self-regard. If you enjoy this or other episodes, you can check us out on Instagram at Black Cats Run. That's also where we make all of the relevant visuals that sometimes are referred to in these episodes available. Let's get into today's episode. We've looked at models of training that we take to be absolute facts. And we've tried to question whether or not that absolutist mindset is really appropriate. But I think it's probably important to articulate a little bit about how sort of exploited our tendency to be willing to look at these certain things as absolute might be. If you look at a lot of the stuff that's marketed to us, uh, training systems, Um, training interventions, like things that you think people would recognize as fundamentally absurd. Like, oh, you know, put this mouthpiece in and you'll increase your FTP, right? Or increase your whatever the flavor of the month training thing is. Um, You know, that's what's pushed towards us. Now, it's possible that all these people marketing these things genuinely believe that they have discovered something that you know, leads to something like that. It could be the case. Um, But it doesn't change the fact that, you know, in aggregate, it's still functionally a scam. You know, maybe they believe in their own scam, but from an outcome standpoint, they're still scamming people and they just happen to maybe also be scamming themselves. But, you know, this idea of performance as this sort of cult of mysteries um, into which you need to be initiated... And I think this desire to sort of make your wealth, your income, um, for some people, maybe you're not really reaching a level that we would consider to be wealthy, but try to generate whatever your level of wealth or income is, you know, some people just basically endorse or say anything, oh, you know, this foot scraper really changed the game. And, you know, I've used this dot system, and it's the best system ever, and then, the key thing is that you as the sort of consumer, the target consumer audience for this stuff, you know, the aspiring performer uh, athlete, you don't understand what's going on. You just are seeing this thing that says, well, you use this blank thing. um, And then, hey, it leads to this impact on FTP, right? Or threshold or, you know, whatever. And it's like you identify the sort of like, highly desirable outcome, depending on the target athletic population, and then you assert that it's connected to that. And then you generate some sort of hocus pocus study, which the majority of people, including college educated people, aren't, you know, learning how to really read and assess, um, you know, a study to determine if it's actually like, you know, valid or useful. So you just get some study like document put together and then you know, you're off to the races, you know, can we get people to buy, you know, these, you know, plastic bags that they breathe into and they fill up and then they, you know, collapse and like, whoa, that's really going to improve this or, you know, here, you know, train with this, you know, mouthpiece in with a little plastic flap that opens and closes when you respirate. Oh, that will increase your FTP. Oh, take this powder. So I think one rule of thumb to think about is if this stuff was really that effective, it would be banned because, Sport has moved in the direction over the last 30 to 40 years, more and more of just, if you're taking things um, other than certain things, right? Why is uh, training not considered, you know, performance enhancing, uh, you know, legal or whatever, right? Maybe it's because it's the amount of suffering, right? Anything that takes away from the suffering that you have to put in um, gets banned. So you look at the level and the enthusiasm for banning things, if it's available and it makes the kind of difference, I mean, people are marketing things that make a bigger difference than EPO. So if you could just use these plastic mouthpieces and, you know, work out with them and get this FTP or this, you know, lactate threshold increase that is greater than, you know, what you could get using, you know, EPO, then why would people be even, you know, bothering with EPO? Because, you know, the other aspect of this stuff is like when you look at the marginal gains, which was really popular when um, Team Sky and particularly Chris Froome were having their run of success with the Tour de France, you know, marginal gains, marginal gains. Well, if you look at the math on how marginal gains work, it's not like, oh, you get 1% plus Now you're at 2% and now you're at 3%. Like you're just getting a percent of that total, right? So like as that total increases, you know, it's not that like direct linear relationship where you're like, I'm at level, I'm at ability 100 and now I'm at 101 and now I'm at 102, right? But there's all of these kinds of ways in which the rhetoric functions to impact us and manipulate us. And I think when you take into consideration the way in which we're very susceptible to these kinds of things, because it's preying on, um, at the end of the day, our sense of desire to unlock a different level of performance. Number two, it is engaging our sense of urgency or ambition or hopefulness that we actually you know have this greater thing within us than we've thus far exhibited and we're just like missing that little piece and that will finally cause those you know dominoes to start to fall and you know create that pattern towards you know ultimate achievement and then you know we also consume number 3 we consume narratives and stories about people who like oh i made this one change and then i made this huge jump right so we have this like basic belief that huge jumps are possible due to relatively small trivial interventions right like we're basically looking at a locked door and we have this ring of a thousand keys and you know it's just finding the right key and then it will open up and all of the rewards and pleasures um that you know are on the other side we'll just simply take that one step through and then we'll be there and you know, that's why, you know, you can market these things and get people to buy these things. And, you know, like, it's hard when you look at this stuff, right? If you look at a commercial for, uh, you know, ketones and like, wow, you know, increase in FTP by 15%, you know, and, you know, making this assertion and yet the people, you know, endorsing this stuff or whatever, or promoting it, right, are lending their you know, it used to be just sort of elite performing athletes, but now you're seeing like high profile YouTubers. I saw this guy endorsing ketones um, on an Instagram ad just the other day, who basically has the one of these like stylized cycling vlog, you know, everything constantly has, um, you know, a camera filter on it, YouTube channels. And, you know, he's talking about ketones. And it's like, it's interesting how this stuff has developed, right? Because now this is not somebody who has this like high performing athlete thing, but I also think there's this idea of, can we market, you know, these performance things to the sort of lifestyle audience, right? So there's all of this stuff going on, um, you know, in terms of how can people make money out of sport and people's interest in this stuff. And when we recognize the goal is to make money I think we recognize that, okay, so this is subject to all of the principles of, you know, marketing and consumer behavior. And in a market economy, um, and I don't mean that in this like free market, rah-rah capitalist sense, but just, you know, in a genuine, in a marketplace, you know, people are going to consume the things that they perceive to be valuable. I know I've referenced this before, but I think it's really elucidating on the nature of human behavior. Like, you know, if you just start a line that doesn't go anywhere, people will just get in it. You know, we have this capacity to sort of follow things that we don't actually understand. Like we'll form the opinion that something is valuable, even though we literally, right, in that true sense, we actually don't know if it's valuable. And we will accept conclusions right, by the same token, that we we, even if we don't know those conclusions are correct. And so what we've tried to establish so far in this uh, series of episodes exploring this topic is that one of the things that we accept is we accept this idea that a very, very small minority of people uh, have the capacity to do well. Now, it is true there's going to be variance, but I also think that we don't appreciate like, what are the things that allow people to do well, you know, and on the one hand, I'm not saying that everybody can ride the exact same, you know, race result or race performance, that everybody's going to run the same time or swim the same time or whatever the case may be. But I think this belief that, you know, there's going to be a couple people who are just obliterating everybody and that the vast majority of people are going to sort of be just staggering along and just, wow, you know, these these pros, they can go out and they can race that far, but the rest of us, we're just hoping to finish. Well, that's a relatable statement, right? It's a statement that's designed to relate to how people feel, right? And then to try to make people feel like they're, what they're doing is better. And I would say that, yeah, there are going to be people, if it's a race, there's going to be people who are going to finish ahead of other people. That's the concept of a race. And that's what's supposed to make racing exciting is when, you know, you if you've done racing you know and i know that the nature of racing has changed and i think it's fair to make it other things um you know right? it can be in a sense whatever people want that game to be and but a lot of it has become like completing events for people or setting personal bests and you know the problem with that aspect is or the limiting factor maybe not the problem but the limiting factor to that is well once you've sort of completed things and, you know, once you've like sort of exhausted your ability to, you know, sort of consistently set personal bests, um, like what is the incentive to keep doing it? And I think for a lot of people, there isn't one. And that's sort of like, you know, their phase of like, well, I'm going to do a marathon, you know. And for some people, it's like sort of this thing of like, well, you know, I I have this level of whatever, you know, I like using technology. I can, you know, make um you know, make myself into kind of like an athletic lifestyle identity, you know, and maybe I'll gain traction with that. And maybe I won't. But I think with racing, if we really recognize that the original sort of interest of it is, you know, from a spectator standpoint, because racing is interesting to watch, if you have enough of a concept of like, who's in the race, and, you know, kind of what is involved and you know, getting ready to do the race, because that can inform, not because you need to know, like, oh, you know, and this is the monumental, inconceivable amount of suffering that this person took on to be successful, you know, and then this is the amount of monumental, inconceivable suffering that this person took on to be successful, because then you get into like, you know, racist commentary on, you know, American marathons, like the Boston Marathon, you know, like, here's this in-depth, you know, personal narrative, of, you know, the leading white person, you know, from the United States, you know, from, you know, when they were in elementary school, let's slowly spin out. We've got a list of anecdotes for all of the people, white Americans that we think are going to be competitive. And then we're going to slowly spin these out, you know, depending on who keeps up the longest. And then there's just sort of like the anonymous, um, you know, non-American. And it's, you know, usually the you know you know african distance running athletes you know and they're just sort of like these unknown anonymous identities but they're the ones out there just demolishing the field right there's been a lot of kenyan runners have had great success running the boston marathon you know and it's like well what about their story like that i want to know about them like what are they doing you know but that's not what's you know uh acceptable to present I don't I think it is interesting but I think for whatever reason we kind of have this you know approach of well we're gonna marginalize and ignore people who don't fit this sort of like really really sad and it makes me really uncomfortable too um, this like great white hope narrative <laughs> that has emerged around that stuff but those kinds of stories, Right. Like, that's not what makes racing interesting either. Like, that's why like most people don't like really like get pumped to watch the Boston Marathon. It might be sort of like a ritualistic thing of like, oh, the Boston Marathon is on like the TV should be on, you know, whatever. But it's not like this hype fest, you know, like it is for other sporting events. I mean, people are more way more excited to go watch just like a sort of non impactful regular season Boston Celtics game than they are to watch, you know, this premier, um, you know, world marathon event. And even with Elliot Kipchoge going to the race, I'm sure you will still see kind of this like ambiguous, like, well, here's his medal count, and now let's, you know, give these meaningful personal anecdotes. I mean, obviously, honestly, the personal anecdotes are sort of cringy, but we're gonna give these meaningful personal anecdotes about these like American athletes because that's what we need to talk about and you know, even though this athlete has only ever run 208, you know, if it's, let's talk about the men's race, he's only ever run 208, and Elliot Kipchoge has run, you know, two hours, and, like, this isn't there. there's no way that this American athlete is going to do battle with Elliot Kipchoge, right? But we're, we we got to shift this narrative around that. And I think that all of this stuff redirects us from the actual value of racing, which is, like, looking at, you know, people sort of, like, challenging each other and the sort of unknown question of like who's going to win and how are they going to make that happen by extension of this as a competitor or participant in a race i think one of the things that's become more and more overlooked is like just like racing people you know finding somebody and the best part is you really don't have to be at the front of the race to have this experience you know you will. Water tends to find its own level, so we kind of going to find ourselves around people of a similar capacity, and that you know, sort of the excitement or engagement of you know battling it out with somebody, you know, and 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 trying to go a little bit faster than other people, right? See if you can run away with them, but not going so fast that you have to slow down, and then they end up beating you. I think that that is like the most repeatable, reliable experience you know, of going out and, like, that's playing the game. And for a lot of people, it's like the fixation with winning that competition, and that can certainly be fun, Um, but it's just, like, I think really the excitement is just, like, being in that where it's like, oh, it's possible that I could, you know, win, or, like, I'm going to be here, you know, and even if it's somebody who, you know, you, you have this phenomena where you go to, like, even area you know, short distance, you know, running road races, you know, you start to see the same people and you kind of tend to be around those people and you will find that you have races where you might really beat somebody consistently for a few races and then you go up and they might suddenly blow your doors off. And, you know, that sort of becomes also interesting and I think engaging. And that's where it doesn't really matter what race you're finishing and it doesn't really matter what place you're finishing and it doesn't matter even what your time is, but going out and having that sort of elevating, kind of exciting, um, competitive experience, I think is what is meaningful. So I think what we should be able to see in, in racing, if people are actually being empowered to train and prepare correctly, is we should see, you know, that there should be like density of competition, you know, more towards this higher level of performance. And I think to the point where what we consider to be high performance is really also by implication, you know, a scarce level of performance, that the highest level of performance has very, very few people doing it. So maybe it makes sense that there might be, you know, a genuine outlier in the sense of like, whoa, this is unusual. Here's somebody who seems to consistently win these races. But there should be like a pretty significant mass of people at the top you know versus this idea that like of the whole world population maybe 10% you know is worthy of a varsity letter and that you know of that percentage of the population maybe 1% is going to be actually elite you know i think that that's not necessarily true and that's what i've tried to show um is that is that's a product of culturally societally the expectations we have of the distributions of like wealth and that sport sort of becomes a morality play in it because we have this ability to create or accept or tolerate or an inability to challenge or question the idea of like significant success and, and affluence and wealth and ability being concentrated an incredibly disproportionate level in the hands of a very, very, very small percentage of a population group and that everybody else is left with scraps, I, see, I feel that we are extending that in a sense and makes us uh, inclined to see that as natural and inevitable in sport. Because if we believe in society as a whole, that most people you know, aren't worthy of any kind of responsibility and have no real creative potential. Um, And I think we see that skepticism, you know, I have conversations and interactions with people where it's very clear that they seem to be experiencing that conversation through a sort of like sizing, you know, me up relative to their sense of their own accomplishments. And I think it's awesome to be able to tell people that, you know, I'm a teacher and I try to lean into as much as possible, you know, emphasizing the things that I know people find to be, you know, underwhelming or non-achievements because I'm disgusted by people who are fixated on this idea of how can I feel that I'm fundamentally superior to somebody else because of my level of education or because my personal accomplishments. You know, I think if we're pursuing things, we should be pursuing them because of the meaning or the validation they bring to us, not because it gives us leverage in conversation where the way we feel good about ourselves is by feeling that other people are less good than we are you know i think that kind of stuff is very difficult and unfortunate and challenging to watch unfold in people's psyche but it's very real and i'm sure a lot of people can relate to those experiences where you know you're you're assume you're supposed to be having a conversation with somebody and then it becomes clear that they're really just telling you how awesome they are And by implication, right? You know, they're telling you that because you're you're not. And if you're somebody who couldn't care less whether or not people think you're awesome, it's like this very awkward and also very comedic experience to watch that play out. But you know, we battle for legitimacy. I think a lot of the times, without even realizing it, we battle for legitimacy within that hierarchy rather than questioning that hierarchy. And I think the training models we've designed, and this is what becomes really interesting is the sort of one of the specters here, right? And so like that, to rewind a little bit, you know, that uh, God and the machine concept, right, is, you know, that intervention, right, of like, well, we can't really explain this. So we're just going to lower in this like divine explanation to just sort of like advance the plot. And I think we have this lack of explanation here um, where we just kind of lower this thing in And we just say, well, that's how society is. But we do that same thing in training is we just say, well, no, those people are, you know, the godlike athletes, you know? Well, of course they're better. They're just better, right? And then like, oh, here, like they handle pain better. And it's like, well, I mean, I guess like once you get to a certain level of pain, like you just can't take it. And so it's like, well, they can. And that's kind of like a total cop-out, right? Because, you know, people don't have this, Inherent capacity to handle more pain, you know, the whatever sport you identify with as an athlete or a spectator or both, uh, you need to or I would encourage you to think like to what extent do you believe that those people do better because they're just ascending. And, you know, I don't know, like if the average person can handle 50 pain points that these Olympic or national championship caliber people are handling a 1,000 pain points or 10,000 pain points. I think that's not true. I think the body's ability to handle stress is relative to its, you know, physical capacity to perform work and that if you exceed that, like, you know, the idea that if you take an Olympic athlete and you just start ripping out their fingernails that they're just like not going to know, right? And you also think about, you know, in a very general you know, pop culture sense, right? The ideas about torture, right? There's this like weird expectation that like, well, if you were ever tortured, like you should be able to stand up to torture. And if you don't stand up to torture, like uh, you're, you're committing treason against your country and you should be executed. And it's just like, you know, people are insane about this stuff, right? And it's so easy to make judgments about other people's experiences and how things feel when you don't have to experience them yourself right and it's so easy to rationalize too and say like well those athletes are just better because they're better you know but when you look at it from the perspective of participating i think a lot of people have like a lot of internal struggle and agony basically over their own feelings of inadequacy like i'm not good enough you know why can't i be better i'm not improving and then we go back to that well i need to be able to handle the pain because the defining characteristic of the super achiever is that they handle pain. And I, mu- I must just be avoiding pain. So I need to find it more pain in exercise. Um, and, and that's the only way. And then you go and you get injured or you get, you know, and, and you develop uh, disordered eating or, you know, mental, other mental health issues. And, you know, we've talked about this in uh, other episodes, but like this kind of stuff starts to emerge. But it's that absolute belief in that hierarchy and that the training models are designed based on that hierarchy. And we've talked in other episodes, an additional concept that has come up in other episodes is the idea that a lot of our ideas about training are designed on the experiences or the successes of an extremely small percentage of the population. We're not looking at what makes people good in aggregate. We look at the individual practices of individual people and we look for the most extremophile aspects of that. And then we try to like take that and say, well, that's what's generalizable, right? That's what everybody needs to be doing. And then it's your ability and the extent to which you can do that. Um, And what ends up happening is these, we design these training models and it pushes us to do these things. So if you go all the way back to what we started with, the idea of, you know, the market for sporting accessories that, you know, plastic mouthpieces or powders that are going to drastically alter your level of performance. So we're willing to consume that stuff because like we just don't understand what's going on and if you really have a level of understanding you're going to look you look at that stuff and you're like this is insane like this is this whole snake oil con artistry thing it's like the catholic church selling indulgences to people in the medieval period you know in european history of like oh well here you can get out of you know purgatory or get out of hell for x thousands of years if you you know you buy this thing and i mean it's a very similar concept and people are susceptible to that you know i mean people used to think that cigarettes were good for them like people are we're capable as people of being of believing anything and when you recognize that though when you recognize that our ability to believe anything is like very much profound and deeply rooted and embedded in our psychological makeup as human beings i think that actually empowers you Because you can start to be more skeptical. Think about the Strava fitness and freshness model. You know, some of you might never have paid attention to that. But if you have a subscription to Strava, and I have a subscription to Strava, because in general, I think Strava is awesome. I think it just adds a lot to doing athletics. Um, You know, the ability to like see what other people are doing is is huge because 95, 99% of these sports, these endurance sports are what you do in, in preparation. And so having that sense of that, you know, if it makes you feel like you're a part of a bigger thing, even if you have to train by yourself some of the time, or maybe all of the time. So I like Strava, you know, I pay for Strava because of that, but there's some features you get on Strava. Um, if you do that, that way. So one of those do that, that way, right? What do I mean? If you're paying whatever it is, X number of dollars a year, um, to have the subscription. And one of those features is, uh, you, you can access your fitness and freshness graph. So I do a combination of right running, riding, and then a little bit of lifting, you know, and for me as a long-term endurance athlete, you know, to me, it feels like a lot of lifting, but for people who really focus on strength training, I'm sure it's kind of a joke it's all relative. It makes me tired. I do about as much as I can handle without being so leveled that I can't do the running and the riding. But so those things in theory, right, those are the inputs I'm putting into this. And from this, and, you know, these, you know, perceived relative exertion, perceived exertion inputs, power, you know, Strava supposedly is telling you what your fitness, um, is, and it's and then it will tell you what your level of fatigue is, and it'll tell you what your form is, and then, you know, this, oh, well, you can figure out if you're improving, and blah, blah, blah. And it's very easy to manipulate this graph, okay? You can manipulate the graph and show huge gains. Now, in general, the graph does respond well to increasing your volume, okay? If you do a ton more activity, it'll probably start to go up. But it's really organized around the same concept that we've talked about in this series of that like distributing work in specific ways, kind of in like we looked at it from a TSS standpoint, but there's other systems that basically TSS is just an attempt to codify or more a different strategy to try to quantify and weight the value of different kinds of training, right? The idea that while doing 20 minutes of You know, VO2 max intervals is more valuable than doing 60 minutes of controlled, you know, comfortable but steady aerobic jogging. And that's a perception, right, that people have. And then they reinforce that perception by designing a training model around that. And something like the fitness and freshness graph, and you see other things that try to tell you your level of fitness. Now, uh, that sells to people, okay, that sells to people. Because it's highly appealing to have something that tells you that you're getting better. We like praise. We like to be told that we're competent. And we like to be told we're becoming more competent. So there's going to be a behavioral demand, a behavioral inclination to seek this stuff out. And even if you're skeptical, if you open up a fitness graph, whether it's on Strava, you get Golden Cheetah, or some other program that does this, because this has, you know, proliferated, you know, more and more in different forms, like a, a watch that tells you, you know, what your current VO2 max is, or tells you what your estimated level of race performances might be. Like, there's clearly, right, demand for this, right? So again, we see that market aspect as we start generating these features, because that's what people want to see. So even if you're a skeptic, you know, even if you're a cynic like me, you're going to look at this, and if you see it going up, you're going to feel good about yourself, okay? It, it appeals to something very basic. And what this is doing is it's then reinforcing us to sort of start selecting things that do this, that cause us to go up. Now, if, you, if you're if you somebody who, like, buys into this, and you're like, well, yeah, but that's the fitness, and, like, you want the fitness to go up, okay? Right, If you buy into that, then you don't have a problem with this. But if you're buying into it completely, then you're probably not following the kind of idea they're trying to illustrate here. So if I look at my fitness and freshness graph, and I'm just going to set it to uh, cycling only. And if I go um, over the last three months, so if I go all the way back to three months ago uh, in December, my fitness was 11. Okay. And then that goes along and it goes along and I get to about, um, the middle of, end of January. Okay. And my fitness is 15, right? So I've improved by five points. Okay. And this is around the time when I then sort of switched to, okay, let me kind of calibrate my lactate threshold and kind of start training around that. But the net effect of that was basically that, you know, the riding I was doing on the trainer started to like ride with more watts more often. And so then, oh, wow. Right. It starts to go up and well, look at this period, you know, um you know, the fatigue is higher. I'm training. And then, you know, it goes up to like 25 and then I kind of backed off my activity level just a little bit because uh, I was, hoping to be able to do the Hyannis Marathon, which ended up sort of just not really working for me. And I had to abandon ship basically immediately. You know, you can see, uh talked about that on another episode. I'm not going to go into that again, right? And so then it sort of hovered at, at 25 for like the last, you know, two weeks now. Okay, so you look at that and you might say, well, you know, that's that's good and you know you're you're improving and okay. So let's like add. Let's look at running only. So my running fitness has decreased in that same time period from 27 to 19. Now I know that that's not true, because I'm out running and I can tell my running fitness has been improving. But by this standard, you know that's what's happening. And the only time my running fitness improved. is when I went out and did the Boston prep race, which was running 16 miles at 7.15 pace on a super hilly course. That's the only time it improved, and then it just went right back down to steadily declining. Okay? And, you know, I've been running, like, given the fact that I run and ride and then also do a little bit of strength training, um, I've been running a fair amount. I've been running, like, 50 to 60 miles a week. And apparently my fitness is just sliding. And I I know that's not true because I'm out running and I can feel myself getting stronger. So then if you look at these things, all activities, you know, when you do power and relative effort, you know, it basically says that my fitness has just sort of like trundled along at the same level. Right. And that I'm not exhibiting any scale of improvement. So what would this cause you to think? It would cause you to think, well, this is this is just impossible, right? Like I'm not getting better. My training is not working. And when I look at the graph, and if you go to all time, when I look at that, you know, my all time peak, according to this graph, um, was 125 fitness points. And that was in... Um, I think like June of 2020, okay? And that was after spending a month in May where I was only riding and I had uh, done 110 hours of riding and I had averaged about 25 hours a week of riding, which the reality is, you know, that was during a pandemic. So I was working remotely. So it was much easier for me to like schedule my exercise because I wasn't going to and from work. And, you know, it's May, which in New England is probably the best month of the year. So the weather is great. You know, you go out and you ride your bike, you know, for average of three, you know, to three and a half hours a day. And then all of a sudden, you know, with a little bit more here and there, you're doing 25 hours a week. You know, Like, whoa, massive improvement in fitness. But I don't, and now I'm at 45. And I don't think that I'm really at any particularly different level of fitness than I have been at any other particular time. So I just ignore this graph because it doesn't really tell you if you're actually getting fitter. It just sort of reflects, are you doing kind of like, if you do a shitload of activity, it will go up a lot. And, you know, to me, it's like, I feel exercising for an average of two hours a day and working out, you know, as many as 14 times a week um, and really, I guess, maybe 16 times if you want to count two strength training sessions as additional workout sections, sessions, and for my fitness to just not be improving, that's insane. And I think it's because this is a model that either, and, and this is reflecting kind of like the dichotomy that people talk about all the time, which is either you can do an absolute ridiculous volume of training. Or you have to really do ridiculous intensity of training. And that that's it. And that those are the only two options. and that for the special people who have the lifestyle or the professionalization that allows them, you know, right, as professional athletes, they've been professionalized athletically, um, that allows them to do a crap load of training, they can do that. And that the rest of us, you know, the time crunched to fill in the blank, We don't have that luxury, okay? And then there's this sort of thing about people complaining about how like, well, I am basically an elite athlete, but like I'm not sponsored, so I don't get to train, you know, full time, and so I'm screwed. And I think the irony is a lot of these people, like, first of all, And I'm not saying this to be callous, and I know for some people this might seem callous and insensitive, and I apologize in advance, and I hope that you can understand the perspective that I'm coming with um, on this, or I'm coming from here. I don't think that it's unreasonable to train 20 hours a week um, if you have a job, okay? Now, because it's like if you really really want to get good at this stuff, and this is like your passion, okay? Well, if you work out for an hour to an hour and a half in the morning and you work out for an hour to two hours in the evening or the afternoon, that's really not that big of a deal. Is it difficult and challenging? Yeah. I mean, you know, yesterday I had a meeting after the work day that I didn't know was scheduled. And so then, you know, doing the bicycle ride and I couldn't get my heart rate monitor uh, to work for like 30 minutes And I was like on the cusp of like Setting the heart rate monitor on fire In the driveway and then just giving up On doing the ride Workout and You know the brain fog Is just like crushing me into the ground You know but I somehow I kind of Like overcame that You know and I, I persevered through that You know that's what's challenging Is you know when your brain isn't there When your head's tired or whatever but like that's a consequence of other lifestyle choices. And it doesn't matter what situation you're in. If you try to burn a candle on both ends, which is really just to say, like, jack of all trades, master of none. If you want to get really good at something, you have to be able to practice it a lot. But if you don't sleep a lot or, you know, you want to just go out drinking all the time, you know, with your buddies, then that's going to be a limiting factor. And that's just the way it is. And I think people then look at that and say, well, that's like a moral judgment. Like, I should be able to go out and, you know, live my lifestyle. You should be able to go out and live your lifestyle. But like your your body, your physiology doesn't like know that there's some sort of a like, um you know, social like access to leisure cultural issue going on where it's like, oh, well, we need to have access to, to leisure time activities to live a lifestyle of modern, you know, um, cultural affluence. So I guess we should be more responsive to a lower level of training. Like that's not how that works. Um, but so right. When you're looking at this though, at the same time from the idea of, well, I have to either do an insane amount of volume or I have to do something that is just like incredibly exhaustive, then those become very exclusive. And I find personally that I don't have a problem pursuing my interests um outside of exercise i feel very satisfied in that domain and it doesn't mean that i have an infinite amount of time for everything but i don't feel that i'm in this position where i'm totally screwed um you know i acknowledge that the counterpoint here is i can't say that oh i run i've qualified for the olympic marathon trials or i can't say that you know i was an all american in the 1500 and and i can't or i can't say that well you know i raced on a UCI continental team in Europe for three years. Like I don't, I can't make those statements. And I know that those kinds of things are really important to people in terms of whether or not you're going to actually think that somebody has anything useful to say. Um, And I think that, you know, again, though, we have to say, is it the endorsement of the individual or is it the like ideas and information and evidence that is being discussed? And that like the purpose here isn't to like, um, tell people what to think, but it's to like give people fuel for their own thinking. So this idea, though, right, of I have to choose between like quitting my job and training all the time versus I have to do like these really precisely organized high intensity intervals in order to try to get the equivalent benefit. And there's, you know, and that's where it's interesting because there's a lot of attempts to research And try to validate that you can accomplish in 30 minutes what, you know, people think they need two hours to accomplish. And the reality is that's just never going to be the case, you know, because it is true that what makes us good is doing a lot. But it's doing, um, it's really practicing something over a long period of time. You know, if you can run 50 to 60 miles a week for 12 months, you know, you're going to get a lot better. And I think that's where the Strava fitness and freshness graph and things like that, they look at these like short term responses, like what's that scale of significance? Uh, because even if you just compare the TSS value, um, if you simply to like itself, right, not to some external competing idea, but if you just say, well, what's the value of doing the specialized TSS stuff versus just sort of doing, you know, steady comfortable but steady, you know, conversational but steady aerobic intensity exercise every day, what you see is if you even exhibit slightly lower levels of response to the optimal theoretical outcome of those, you know, higher intensity, higher TSS generating sessions, then like you're better off just doing, you know, aerobic split where you're just splitting your volume across, you know, reasonable length aerobic sessions day in and day out. Like, even within that model, that's still better. And I think that's, you know, the the ghost and the machine that we're trying to identify in this Deus Ex Machina series of episodes is trying to recognize that phenomena. And I think we can think of it, too, as relating to Thomas Piketty's concept in Capital in the 21st Century, where the rate of return on capital investment is greater than the growth rate of the economy, and I think that is, you know, one of the sort of explanatory factors for um, economic inequality. But I think that again, like, if we say that sport sort of parlays our notions of the distribution of achievement from society into sport in general, like we're inclined to accept that, well, of course, only a couple people are going to be good at this. And that's not a reflection of the training, that's a reflection of other people's deficiency as human beings um, to sort of get good at things. But what we also see, right, if we further extend that, is that over time the gaps become greater and greater because of the inequality in that system. And that's what we see in training, is that the idea that only a few people, right, can succeed... Causes us to say that only a few examples are worth considering. And then it becomes this model of like, well, here is the succeeding things. Do them. Well, if you're taking things that only work for a few people, then you're probably going to be likely to find that you're only ever going to have a few people who are going to improve. And so, you know, then over the scale of physical activity over 10 years or 20 years or a lifetime, you're going to see like these increasingly divergent things and when we look at a society and we complain about how our society seems to be growing in levels of you know you know being unhealthy and whatever um, and you know there's a lot of questions about obesity and I'm not an expert on obesity I don't claim to be but I do think it's interesting that um, our ideas about what is physical activity and what does it mean to be active and you know, our our active lifestyles have changed um, to more of these kinds of like, well, the activities you do are you go places where you just eat and drink constantly. And it's less so going places. I mean, even you go, I mean, alcohol, right, makes people fat as hell. Okay. If you drink a lot, you're probably going to gain a lot of weight. And that's just an absolute fact. And I know people don't want to engage with that understanding because people are so, defensive about drinking because they want access to that activity like people feel like it's a human right to be able to drink and you know maybe it is but like why can't people look at it and just be like oh what are like the actual effects on me oh when i drink a lot i actually kind of feel gross you know and it changes my mood and not necessarily for the better and if i drink a lot you know I don't really sleep that well, and, you know, then I basically sort of just sort of socially stagger from one drinking opportunity to the next, and is that, right, we don't really reflect on whether or not that's what is, like, really making us feel good, we just kind of pursue that, and I'll be honest, I don't do that, Um, I'm not a pro, like, you know, (laughs) trying, saying, bring back prohibition, but I just don't really drink alcohol, um, because I just don't really have interest in it, but... (laughs) I'm also not like some teetotaling evangelist about it either. I'm just saying if you just look at stuff like that, you know, at a basic level, like even now in races, like gravel cycling races, it's like you're doing this like athletic activity supposed to maybe in theory be good for you. And it's like, let's put a bunch of alcohol on the course and you can drink while you're racing. And it's just like crazy, (laughs) you know, when you think about it and You know, how much of this stuff in terms of like declining in physical health and, you know, how much of that is not this sort of like cynical conspiracy level change to society. But it's just like we have just organized our behavior around having access to taking in more calories than we actually use. And the idea in that context that, you know, doing 20 minutes of exercise is somehow going to be good or the equivalent, that's just a bunch of bullshit. And I think if you're working as a coach, you know, you shouldn't want to see this phenomena of the majority struggle and the few succeed. And, you know, I feel very conflicted about the concept of coaching in general, because I know there are some people who do coaching and that's like a really good thing. But then I think there's a lot of people who do coaching and it's like probably kind of negative or detrimental or really they're better off not doing that. And I think there's so many norms about like how you're supposed to act if you're going to be a coach, you're going to be a quote unquote good coach. And I think those can be really difficult for people to battle with. But I think a core suggestion that I would make to anybody in that kind of a position is don't assume that you're waiting to discover the talented athlete. Assume that the people who can't exhibit talent are the uh, exception. Like everybody for high school boys, everybody should be able to run under 440 in the mile. That's really not that fast, okay? Basically, everybody should be able to run 430s. Now, if the lifestyle pieces aren't there, like if people just like don't want to be physically active, then yeah, that's not going to happen. But if you have athletes who want to do it and want to be physically active every day and you have four years to work with them, well, then you should be able to get them to where they're running under 440 in the mile. And if you're not doing that, then that's your failure. Okay. But we've established this idea that, oh, no, that's unusual. And then running under 430, that's even more exceptional. Okay, and what we've seen is we've seen an improvement in the absolute high end of performance in high school distance running for boys and girls, but we don't really see this like groundswell of just the whole population in general just sort of jumping up. It's just people the this the special population getting further and further ahead, right? And that's that R is greater than G relationship applied in a metaphorical sense to athletics. So where is this really rooted? Like, why does it play out like this? Why do we um, have this issue where we can't just like give the best workouts um, to everybody and, you know, have everybody succeed, right? Because if you're, depending on where your paradigm is on this, you might be saying, well, okay, if what you're suggesting is true and most people should be more successful, then they should be responding to these workouts and they're not. So that proves that most people can't be successful, well, I think the responsiveness thing is what we need to explain, right? Why aren't people responsive? Because you might say, well, these are like equivalent training stresses, right? They're sort of, it's not like you're giving this one, you're not telling one person, okay, I want you to stand here and do jumping jacks. And the other person, I want you to do this threshold workout, right? Well, if that was the case, like obviously the person doing jumping jacks is, is getting screwed, but it looks like you're applying the correct intervention to people, Um and it's hard to really look at what's happening in any given workout or practice session and recognize the issue. And that's because when we talk about fatigue, that's something that's harder to see. And I think essentially we could say, if we want to go again, use one at least one more time this Thomas Piketty observation as a metaphor, I think the limit um, of fatigue for the minority um you know the people who are kind of are in that R category, right? The people who seem to be showing big returns on their investment. Um, the the limit of fatigue is less than what the majority experiences, and what I'm trying to describe by that, I guess, is that there's a small group of people who don't seem to have as high a level of fatigue response to training. Now, one Example of this could be that maybe just like when they arrive at practice to start this athletic experience, that they have a higher lactate threshold, maybe, right? We want to use something more physiologically specific to explain this. And so when you assign them to run, everybody to run six times to 800, or you want people to do five three-minute efforts on the bike or whatever it is, right, some sort of standardized training session, the person with the higher lactate threshold isn't going to get as fatigued because they're just not working as hard because they're better equipped to handle that. And so the person who doesn't work as hard is going to be the person who's going to improve. And that's really interesting because our whole paradigm is usually based around the idea that the person who works the hardest is going to do that. Well, the person who's going the fastest right, is the person who's producing the most work right? Because to go faster, you need to produce more work, right? That's just the physics of the matter. But that's not necessarily the person who is working the hardest subjectively. Like when we say work hard, we mean pain and suffering. Okay, we don't mean producing objectively more work without a increase in perceived exertion. Okay, we mean pain and suffering. So what this means then is the group of people who and then, like most people are getting really fatigued from that session. And so then you have, you come back to the next session, and some people will have kind of cleared through their fatigue and some people won't have. And so the people who never really clear through the fatigue just sort of get increasingly tired. And I've been in that position, but I also would suggest I think most people have been in that position because most people don't find situations with training, whether it's self directed or whether it's um, working with somebody else to plan their training. Most people don't find themselves in positions where they have this stuff balanced. So, and I'll give an example here in a moment, um, but like what this means is if we think about it as like a math problem of like how, are, how much fatigue, right, are different people experiencing and then training based around that because that's pointing us towards their proximal development, Um, proximal zone of development, which in turn is really basically saying like, hey, you know what, when you work at such levels beyond or below lactate threshold, like you start to see different fatigue responses. And so really, we can't go too far beyond that individual's lactate threshold because they have too much fatigue to really improve and get better and when we think about that as a math problem it's be very obvious but when we think about it as an extension of our social and cultural values of hierarchy and then we add into that our propensity to basically be suckers for things that sort of fit our notion of like the secret sauce is out there and we just have to uncork that baby and you know put it all over you know whatever we're serving up to ourselves and then we're going to get better. Like we see, you know, that limiter really kick in. And I think that, you know, that's why the system works for some and not others. And why more specifically, why it works for a few and not most. And, you know, I think it then becomes very true as a consequence of this to say, different athletes experience different levels of responsiveness as a consequence, a consequence of fatigue, right? That must be true. Um, And I think this is partly given by your capacity to engage with the work and preparation. So what might this look like kind of more specifically? So I like the idea of train to train to race. And this is something my dad has said many times um, over the years, but you have to train to train to race. And I think that's actually a really good um, way to articulate it because a lot of times you're assigning activity to people and they're exhibiting a higher level of fatigue and so they're not improving and then that can if they push themselves they don't get better they just get injured right or if their just body is really resistant to injury then they get to the point of just mental exhaustion and i would say for my part i've always been very resistant to injury and i basically have had very few injury problems in the grand scheme of things given how much time I've spent doing these athletic disciplines whereas other people basically as far as I can tell are constantly injured I've had little to no injury problems um, you know comparatively and well what happens then is like you don't get better you just get more tired and you don't improve because you're still not resolving that fatigue issue and eventually mentally you're just like I can't take it anymore I can't keep doing these workouts because I'm not getting any better from doing them and so like i'm just and instead of this thing of like okay you know this is really hard but like i'm super excited because i know it's going to lead to this outcome once it becomes clear to you that doing that work isn't going to lead to that outcome it's not exciting or fulfilling or challenging it's literally a waste of your time and it starts to feel like increasingly insulting and demeaning that somebody is insisting that this is what you need to do and it's just like bro this is not what I need to do because this is literally not working. Like I literally go out and am laying a fat egg every time I race. And how can you not perceive that? And how can you not, You know, recognize that this isn't working. But if you're in the paradigm of you have to go out and suffer and pay those dues in pain and blood and sweat, that's the only way that you're going to see this stuff as being successful. But if we take this train to train to race idea, I think it's an easy way to say, well, how can I apply something with this? So you need to do training in a way that you're sort of building your capacity. And one thing that a lot of people want to get to is they want to get to doing intervals, okay? And when we think about it in that regard, okay, it becomes the idea of, well, the intervals are productive. And I do think using sort of variations of intensity and stress is really an important part of practice. And that's like varying what you do from day to day. It's picking different loops, doing loops with hills, doing loops that are flat, you know, as well as doing this stuff. But there's a lot more value in going out and doing things that are steady. And until you can do things that are steady and even, you're not going to really be able to have success with this stuff. And figuring out, right, how do you develop that? Really talking about there is endurance and stamina is really key because that's what allows you to start doing these other things. And it's not that those other things that that's where the magic happens, but it's like, okay, then you can kind of add this other piece. So a session I did um, yesterday was uh, 21 uh, by 400. And that's because I miscounted and I thought that there was one more. So I did a whole nother quarter before I looked down at my watch because I'm like, man, why isn't this beeping to tell me I've run a quarter mile? And I realized that the workout had already finished 400 meters ago. So with this session, you know, I just wanted to do something different than doing 4 x 2 k. I I said, well, I'll just do like 20x400 because that's still basically about 8,000 meters of running. So if you think about it on a muscular contraction level, Right, if you're running about the same velocity, you're going to do about the same number of strides, you know, over that same distance. So, like whatever, you know, maybe doing 400s will be, you know, a different way to do that and make it more interesting. Um, so and I was running with somebody else, and I think comparing this to to them, I think it will also be illustrative. So, you know, we did the same thing; we ran these 400s, and it's like 5:30 in the morning, and the clocks have changed. So now, once again, it is. Pitch blackout when we're starting and got the headlamp on. So we, we started and then basically we ran this 1100 meter circuit um, in this uh, neighborhood where there's no cars and and it's flat. And we'd just go around, do 400. Then we would, you know, sort of coast for 40 seconds, jog for 40 seconds, do which is probably maybe like at most 100 meters. Um, and then we'd boom, another 400 and went through it. First 10, you feel good um, no problem. Then around like 12 or 14, you start to notice that you're starting, you're like, you know, experiencing a sensation of work. And then you start to feel like you're kind of like questioning, you know, why do I want to keep going? And, you know, the time you get to the last three, you're like, okay, you know, I can do three more. It's fine. Right. But that sense of like, I kind of would like to stop starts to kick in, but it's not overwhelming. You know, your legs aren't blowing up and you're trying to keep it at that intensity. So, ended up running quicker than run the the 2,000-meter two, the reps. But I think that's, you know, one of the aspects that might be beneficial of doing shorter reps is that you can, you know, sort of, you know, throttle that idea of, okay, so instead of running 7-minute seven to 7.15 pace for 2,000-meter reps, okay, now we're running like 6.30s, you know, ish, 6.30 to 6.40 pace, you know, Approximately for these 400s, right? And that can be beneficial because, on a central nervous system level, a pattern of movement level, you know, you're kind of accessing, moving at a greater rate. And then that can translate when you go back to longer stuff. You start to, that can also help you start to get a little bit faster because you, you know, anybody who's really done a lot of serious running knows that there is this benefit that doesn't quite seem to be exactly fitness per se, but where when you do it the right way, if you practice running faster, you just start to feel naturally like you can run quicker all the time so right also trying to tap into that and so when we got back to the um where we had parked to, to meet up to start the run is well, how far did you go like i don't know i wasn't really paying attention right i'm just thinking i looked down on the watch i was like oh wow 9.2 miles <laughs> That was kind of surprising right because i'd always thought like you know the bummer about working out in the morning is i had to get up so early if i want to run like nine or ten miles before work but You know, 74 minutes of running, we did nine and a quarter miles. So I'm like, okay, I feel good about that. Um, But I was also kind of a WTF moment. Like, you know, what the F, how did we just run almost 10 miles? And But that's a good moment to be surprised, right? I wasn't doing something to impress myself. I didn't set out to do something to impress myself. And if anything, as I was doing the 400s, I was like, well, these really aren't that great. You know, but like, I guess it's better than, you know, what I could have done in the past. Right. And accepting like kind of you're at where you're at and you're trying to progress. Um, And for a lot of us who've done stuff at a high level, a higher level, we should say, and then have sort of had a a period of time where we've come off of that or we've focused on other things. And I did when I was uh, coaching extracurriculars in addition to teaching. And ever since I stopped coaching those extracurriculars, that's sort of been... And it's a grind to try to get that back. And one of the mistakes has been, okay, I got to get back to that level of specific work. And, you know, well, six-minute pace is important, right? And accepting that, you know what, six-minute pace is not really a productive or useful state for me to be at. And sort of backing off of that has been key. So I'm not blowing my mind in that sense, but that sense of, well, I guess I kind of accomplished something. Um, and, you know, when I was coaching cross country, that idea of the workout days being also days where you were getting in more miles or more total time was also important. Um, but for other people, I think there's this idea that well, doing uh, this stuff really is about just those energy demand things and that, you know, a lot of people would look at this session of, you know, and so basically you could also interpret it as, okay, we did like. Maybe six ish miles to six and a half miles, and we're sort of you know going along and you know faster, slower, faster, slower, and kind of averaging out around seven twenty pace. and people might look at that and be like, well, that's stupid, you know, you shouldn't be doing that. Well, for me, um, it was interesting because when you look at now, I don't know how accurate this is because I didn't wear my chest strap, I just had my uh, heart rate from my wristwatch on. And But for me, I had a very steady heart rate the whole way. At least that's what it looks like. So, you know, if we assume that's true, and I guess it doesn't matter because for the purpose of the example, it's still illustrative. Like, um, it looked like my heart rate just sort of stayed even the whole time and that, you know, during the rest intervals, it wasn't really going down. Now, I'm not confident that that's true because the wrist watch thing doesn't really seem to be very responsive or very effective. But if we just compare this, a uh, guy I worked out with, um, he had a really nice-looking uh, sawtooth heart rate graph where I think he had his chest strap on for this. And, you know, there would be, you know, it would uh, by the end of the rep, heart rate would be up, you know, around, you know, 1%. 57 to 160, and then by the end of the recovery, it would have gone back down to about 145. And it was like that every single rep. It would build up over the rep to about 160, and then by the end of the recovery, it would come back down to 145. So that's just sort of that undulation, right? So versus if you're looking at my graph, if mine was accurate, which I don't know if it was, but let's just say that was accurate, if I'm having that steady heart rate the whole way, then that means that like I'm not really... Showing that same capacity for recovery. And that's interesting because we both went back and did separate uh, sessions on the bike and that evening. So for me, I did um, five by five minutes at uh, 230 watts. So rather than train at lactate threshold, I just tried to pull back into a range and I thought about, okay, what kind of muscular fatigue do I think is going to be there? And I think that was appropriate because my blood lactate was 1.5 millimole, which for me is consistent with being at, you know, or a little bit over my lactate threshold. Um, However, guy I did the 400s with, he went on uh, Zwift and he did 60 minutes um, at, you know, around the lactate threshold intensity all the way through, including, and I thought this was really uh, good, you know, for him in terms of like just... Not like good as in like, I'm really impressed he could do that. I mean, good in the sense of like, I think that just shows great fitness, you know, including in the middle, he did about seven minutes of almost 320 watts. No. So to just sort of be able to throw that into the middle of, you know, a steady effort and then, you know, go back to steady effort. That's really good for me. I felt that doing five by five minutes was pretty much good enough. And I think if I had tried to go longer or do more watts, I think I would have been drifting into that um, excessive zone. And so, no, I had done some other stuff. Like the two previous days, I had done some sort of like intervals on Zwift. I had done, you know, a couple of like nine to 10 minute intervals at threshold the day before. And the day before that, I had done maybe like 10 or 11 uh, you know, three minute intervals that threshold. So again, kind of like for me trying out different things and I've kind of like, it's weird, like sitting on the trainer and pedaling below a certain amount of Watts is like, kind of like not super comfortable. Um, but if you have two more Watts, it actually feels better, but then it's the dilemma of like, well, you don't want to like start just stacking on fatigue because you have this like minimum level of exertion. So I try to use the intervals to be like, well, I can, do more riding, but then I need to like be taking breaks. So I'm not just like making myself so tired that I'm screwing up my training in general. But so this kind of approach shows that like for two different people, right, you have a different fatigue response. And, you know, one explanation here or one sort of observation here could be that, you know, if my heart rate wasn't really dropping in the recoveries, then That could be because, like, you know, I had a little bit more fatigue going into the 400s session because of doing things the previous two days, doing those intervals the previous two days on the trainer, and that when I got to the afternoon, right, I had that fatigue, and so five by five minutes, you know, in the lactate threshold intensity was appropriate, right, but versus for somebody else, if they're having that heart rate come down nicely in between every rep in that 40 second recovery jog, then, you know, for them to be able to go out in the afternoon, well, then that's probably means that they're accumulating less fatigue. So I think you can kind of see that modeled here. But we're also seeing that, like, you know, we had done a bunch of sessions of four by 2k prior to doing these 400s. Now, the goal wasn't really to progress to the 400s per se. uh, And I don't think it's a progression. I just think it's like something different. But at the same time, I think the capacity to engage in that is a product of, you know, these other things. So that, like, by doing that one aspect and working at 7-minute pace, 6.55, 7.10 pace, whatever that zone of uh, speed is on any given morning, when we've done that session, you know, that's something that changes or develops over time, right? Fine. And then, you know, you can kind of feel that, start to increase. And that's irrespective of what uh, the fitness and freshness graph says. Because the fitness graph doesn't really say I'm getting any fitter. But I think doing the, you know, nine-mile run with those six, six miles of 400, you know, faster, 100-meter coasting, um, I think that that was like a big improvement. And, you know, in the going in the right direction with that stuff. And I compare this to doing like in college – Uh, Doing 8 times 464 with 60 second rest. Where it's like that was the only thing that was really accomplished that day. You know, and that was it. And that there was like the warming up and, you know, maybe cooling down. But it was like the only thing that was considered to be valuable were those 8 64 second efforts. So then it's like when you think about that from a practice standpoint, you practice for 8 minutes you know, eight to nine minutes that day. And then the best part about that is that was followed by going out on the weekend on the meet on Saturday and staggering to a 444 or a 447 or a 448 mile or something in that range. It's not like I was practicing a tempo that I could actually do. You know, I was just doing the get squeezing the most juice out of myself that I could possibly produce. To do, I'm setting up, you know, the workout isn't a workout. It's just this, like, test, right? It's its own race. Of, you know, for me to go out and do those quarters in 64, you know, was a performance. And then I had noth- nothing in the tank to perform with at the actual race. And then you don't look at that critically and examine that because the mindset isn't that, okay, training is something that, like, is a part of this, like, multi-step process and evolution of activities to race. And I had mentioned uh, the example of Sam uh, Long's workout that he had posted on YouTube prior to going to the Clash of Miami. And then I was like, oh, I want to kind of see what was their reaction to this. And he had talked about that just not feeling off and just not feeling like as strong or as powerful. And, you know, I don't know enough information, have enough information to know if this is true, but I think it was interesting to hear that reflection. Because that would sort of be consistent with the idea of like over extending um, in the workout, right? You're you're going from training to straining, right? Instead of putting, making deposits, you know, doing that 5.11, that rep at 5.11 pace at the end, you know, right? Was that making a withdrawal? And then he goes to the race and he, he doesn't. And he notices that he doesn't feel as strong or as powerful or as comfortable as he usually does. And I think an extremophile version of that would be the kinds of track workouts that a lot of middle distance runners do around the United States and high school and college programs every year. You know, for me, eight times a quarter in 64 was useless. I wasn't running 4.16 in the mile. I'd like to think that I could have run 4.16 in the mile, but it was never going to happen that way. And working out for eight minutes basically total, right, that the only, you know, and everything else was just like, you know, the warm-up was like a mile, and the cool-down was like a mile, right? And it was basically, I think exercising a lot is good. I'd be the last person to say junk mileage, but like that was like total junk. You know, that was trash, you know. And so you are basically really only exercise, well, you can't get better. You're not going to run, you know, You're not going to create a 415, you know, miler off of eight minutes of training. (laughs) But that mindset, right? It was like everything has to be sacrificed at the altar of that versus, you know, what I'm doing with 400s in my workout example was doing 20 of them, you know, with 40 seconds of running in between the faster 400s. And I'm doing them at a ridiculously slower pace, you know, one. 35 to 142, I think, was kind of like the range for those splits. And I'm doing them on the road at 530 in the morning. I'm not going to an indoor track with a group of guys and, you know, taking advantage of that environment and getting all, you know, hyped up and whatever. And I think that when we look at this, right, you know, this again has to do with fatigue. You know, so when we think about this concept, right, like what does our fatigue mean? Right. So you would argue that, you know, well, you know, that was more legit the one person who does the session in the morning and then goes out and does the sixty minutes at threshold, including right that seven minute section where they can go and, you know, do three twenty and you're like, Whoa, well, that's a great day. And you'd say, Well, for me, doing, you know, five by five minutes at sub lactate threshold, you'd be like, well, that's not, you know, that's obviously worse, but that's a opportunity cost, right? Is like the perception of like what the alternative is decreases the value of my workout. Um, but I think actually they were equivalent, you know, for me, I did what was appropriate for me and he did what was appropriate for him. And if we had flipped those sessions and I had done what he did and he did what I did, it would have been, you know, detrimental, you know, to me, and it would have been like, um, he would have lost out on the ability to get more value out of what he could have done. Right. But so recognizing what's your fatigue is hard, because that means you have to have that capacity to say internally be self referencing and say, what's really correct or beneficial for me to be doing here. And, you know, we want to, of course, disclaim that we aren't, Trying to like dispense with the findings of science when we're talking about like fatigue, and we're not trying to set like because one of the things as well like you apply stress and then you recover and you improve, and like you know you apply high levels of stress and there's a lot of evidence that suggests that, that leads to improvement. So we're not trying to uh, shut that down, but we're trying to like ask this in a rational manner. And I think that when we think about this in a rational way, like we have to recognize that fatigue doesn't function in this like way where fatigue is proportional to the work assigned, right? That fatigue is proportional to the response to the work assigned or that fatigue is the response to work assigned and not everybody's going to exhibit the same response. And there's like different models of fatigue out there. And that's the part of what makes it difficult to try to understand this and some people say that like it's about deciding the model of fatigue, um, and you know Steve Magnus's book, The Science of Running, which a buddy of mine sent uh, me a couple years ago, and and I had I read and I thought was really thought provoking in a lot of ways, but one of those ways was thinking about different models of fatigue. And so when I think now about concepts of fatigue, I mean that could be cardiovascular. Anaerobic fatigue could be energy supply, energy depletion fatigue, neuromuscular fatigue, muscle trauma fatigue, biomechanical fatigue, thermoregulatory fatigue, psychological motivational fatigue, uh, central governor theory model of fatigue, and that it's probably that fatigue is multifaceted, that there's multiple things that can be fatiguing out at any one time And rather than say, well, here's this one model of fatigue, which is like there's a response to stress and we have to battle and overcome that to recognize you can have these different models of fatigue. And like for me, when I got on the bike yesterday, you know, again, massive brain fog is just like a struggle, right? Where it's just like there's this temptation to be like, I just need to keep ingesting caffeine until this goes away. But you learn through experience that it's not, no amount of caffeine is going (laughs) to, really help that after a certain point and to just be like, I need to get on and start pedaling because if you don't, you're just going to sit around and feel brain foggy anyway, you know, for an hour. So why, you know, just may as well ride your bike anyway, but cultivating those habits. Um, but all of those models of, of fatigue are basically like linear where it's like, as you do more work, this fatigue starts to go up. Um, but there's, I think, less discussion of non-linear fatigue. And I think if we know that understandings of fatigue are continuing to expand and develop, I think we can recognize that we need to like think more carefully and be more open to the idea that you know there's more to be seen or uncovered in terms of this concept of responsiveness. And I would suggest an additional form of fatigue... Which I think could probably, in fairness, maybe if you wanted to bump it into the psychological motivational. But I want to separate that as its own thing because I think it's underappreciated when it's just sort of washed into that domain. And I would call this fulfillment fatigue, you know, which is what happens if we're not consistently experiencing fulfillment from what we're doing, and is that going to lead to a breakdown in behavior? You know, I could run eight by 464. But I eventually lost the ability to do that. It's not that I physically lost the ability to do that. I just like wasn't going to do it anymore. And, you know, the first kind of signs and symptoms of that were when I would try to talk to the coaches and be like, I just don't think this is working. Like, I feel like I need to do different workouts. Um, But there really wasn't flexibility around that and I don't necessarily like blame the coaches I think that it's really difficult when you're in this thing and you have like the information that suggests it works and then you have the milieu around you which is saying probably basically saying well this guy who's talking to you he's just not good and that's just kind of how it is and you know what are you going to do you're not going to like tell well I mean hopefully I mean I know some people would because they're assholes but you know the people that the coaches at Bates when I was there were extremely, you know, nice people and, and upstanding, you know, people. And I feel very fortunate to have had, you know, such quality individuals, you know, give their time and energy to that program and to, to us as athletes. Um, they weren't going to tell me that they just thought I was a scrub, but I think that that was sort of probably uh, the impression or the explanation for that. And like, if we're not being consistently fulfilled, though, right, that's going to lead to a breakdown in behavior. And breakdown in behavior sounds like a lack of personal responsibility, but for me, it's just like, why am I doing this? Like, and you start to suspect that, like, I think even if it's just sort of on a unconscious level of like, well, this is, is this the reason why I'm not doing well? And the distinction here is that motivation, I would say, is sort of like a pre-activity Thing. It like empowers you to do the activity, whereas fulfillment is post activity. And if we aren't feeling good about our training, in other words, I think we're more likely to feel fatigue. And that's an interesting concept because we think of fatigue as being this like absolute thing, but ultimately, fatigue is something that we perceive, right? It is a subjectively experienced thing. And even if aspects of fatigue can be like physically and physiologically identified and quantified like for example when my fatigue is higher and if I want to work out at lactate threshold I can do that I'm just not going to be doing as uh, much wattage I'm not going to be doing the same running pace but if you have this different concept of like okay pushing whatever like you could probably go out and do something like that but I think for me if I had tried to do again what My buddy did um, for his bike session. My blood lactate would have been like closer to three, which for me is way out of bounds of what I want to be accomplishing. And I think that if we don't experience like fulfillment from what we're doing, that that's going to start to change the opportunity cost where it's like I'm doing this workout, you know, in that college context and doing this workout. And every time I do this workout, I go out and I suck at the meat right? So this is not making you feel good. Um, Or like, you know, why do bad grades predict more bad grades? Is it because you recognize the student's ability? Or is it because, you know, when you tell somebody they're a failure again and again and again, that it increases the likelihood of failure? And I think we do this all the time in education, where we say, oh, well, you know, you give people the failing grade and that should motivate them to work harder, right? And so like the athlete, if the athlete fails, that should motivate them to work harder. But I think that what the athlete or the student is learning is that they're a failure or that they can't do well. And so, you know, that means something is happening in their process, right? And it could be the case that doing eight 400s and 64 could be a really beneficial workout, you know, if you also went out and ran five miles first and you got up in the morning and you ran six miles in the morning and then you did those in that context and you know they were under control and you didn't feel like you were sprinting the whole way and like there's a context in which eight four hundreds and sixty-four is really good. But there's also a context in which that's not effective. And the reality is for me, you know, I wasn't at a training standpoint where that was what I needed to be doing. And nor frankly was there anything in racing that was suggesting I could do that. And just because you could force that out doesn't mean it was productive. You know, and that was outside of my, you know, zone of proximal development. And, you know, for students, right, when we're in a school setting, it doesn't mean that the the lesson or the class or the activity isn't a good activity. It just means that we're not ready to absorb the benefit but sometimes it turns into this idea of like well they just can't do it and it needs to be something different instead of well they can do it they just can't do it right now and there needs to be some preparation you know rewind on that preparation process and you know the reality is with failing grades failing grades increases a student's risk for dropping out too which i think is very telling of this concept of fulfillment fatigue know, what comes happens after fatigue, of course, is recovery. And I think there's a distinction to be made here between rejuvenation versus recovery. And you know, understanding how we fatigue, right, should mean understanding how we respond to fatigue. And I think rejuvenation is taking training from the perspective of how to continue to feel good and saying that feeling good is more important than quote unquote recovery and that recovery matters but you can technically recover and still be losing engagement over time right because like there's fatigue is more complicated when you have a simple model of fatigue and a simple model of training and a simple leads to a simple model of like how like something like recovery works and i think when we expand to rejuvenation we get a better perspective and we can ask the question is training more fatiguing for people who don't hit adrenaline response when given harder training challenges and so i think for me that sense of something isn't worth doing you know had you know caused a lot of training to sort of drop off from being where i was getting that you know like epinephrine level like okay let's go i'm getting amped up because it was just like here's another thing that is just going to screw me over and i don't have a choice i have to do this because the perception of the people around me is that i suck at this stuff and it doesn't really matter what I do and you know the issue is that I'm just not going hard enough in these sessions and if I would just do the session the right way I would get better right and and you're trapped in that bubble and you know great example of people who have really good intentions you know good intentions aren't any insulation against negative outcomes and I think in the long run uh, being in that you know adrenal state could probably have its downsides but the sort of the paradox maybe of this is that in the short run, like the adrenal response is helping to create the illusion um, or maybe uh, the practical perception of recovery having been achieved. And that's a a part of like fulfillment, right? When you feel like you're recovering um, and you're feeling strong again after, you know, making yourself tired, that's fulfillment. And, you know, so then like what if you're adrenal to some kinds of training and not others, right? So if you perceive certain things to be valuable and certain things not to be valuable, that has a huge impact on how you're going to engage with it. And I think we're sort of using, to be fair, adrenaline, epinephrine as sort of a placeholder for maybe any number of other neurochemical, hormonal uh, level things that are happening around the response to training, right? Like maybe in fairness, um, you know, due to a lack of more specific knowledge on this at this point, right, and kind of referring to this. So is it good or bad, though, to stimulate this adrenaline response? You can find some bullshit on the internet about adrenal fatigue. Um, It's kind of like, you know, one of the other scams that I've started to notice recently is this idea of like, magical potions that you can drink in the morning, like, you know, powders or mixes that will allow you to immediately get up and feel awake and alert. And it's like the reason why people feel like that is because they don't go to bed early enough and then they like drink lots of coffee and then they wake up and they like kind of have a headache and they want to be asleep because they're still tired. Like that's why you don't feel good. And we have a social cultural model that tells us we have to get up at certain times because everything is run on factory lines of bells and schedules and stuff like that. But you know, what does this sort of really do? Right? So One of the things that we're seeing here, I think, in terms of reasonable conclusions is that adrenaline, epinephrine, um, right, is induced from sort of that fight-or-flight response and that it's a neurotransmitter. Uh, Cortisol, though, is another thing that's coming up here, um, you know, as a response to stress. And cortisol, um, if it's elevated for long periods of time, um, can lead to muscle wasting. Um, Cortisol can also prevent inflammation. People can get an injection, an an injection of cortisol, cortisol shots. You maybe have heard of this. Um, There are, you know, short-term, long-term effects of this, and the short-term effects tend to be better, and the long-term effects tend to be worse. Unlike adrenaline, cortisol is a hormone, and um, it's also released in response to stress, just like epinephrine is, adrenaline is. And one of the things that's interesting about cortisol, uh, to me anecdotally, is that um, it seems to boost short-term memory. And it's interesting because people will have really clear memories of specific workouts or specific races. You know, I still do. And people remember their splits and they remember all of this stuff and they remember it pretty accurately. And You know, but other things, you know, if you exercise every day, you're only really remembering a small portion of that. So is it the case that these things that are more um, adrenal are also therefore more, uh, you know, cortisolic? And is that then like, you know, why we're seeing those short-term memory things? So in that case, could it be possible to infer that, hey, you know, some of these workouts or races where you have really clear memories, those were races where you actually were experiencing a lot of stress and then maybe more like, you know, epinephrine release in that event. And so you have these stronger short-term memories of those specific uh, moments. And so can we say that situations that trigger epinephrine also trigger cortisol? Um, And so then in that sense, like, is having frequent demands on adrenaline negative because if you're constantly having those adrenal demands then you're also constantly having that cortisol you know levels being elevated and then if that's the case right that means you're having high levels of cortisol for a long time and now you're shifting from these short-term effects which maybe are more beneficial to the long-term effects that are less beneficial. So then you have that argument um, which is saying that like different levels of fatigue can be experienced by athletes in different ways. And that could offer some window into why people's response to a training stimulus or training stress isn't going to be effective, where you can have people who in the short term can handle really hard workouts, where they're doing the same workout, probably at a slower pace than the higher performing athletes on the team. And then they start to fall apart. And like, is that because they're mentally weak? Or is it kind of grounded in these kind of neurotransmitter hormonal relationships? And I think those are things that we don't usually think about as coaches. And Steven Seiler makes this interesting distinction between stress and strain, where he talks about how if we're experiencing different levels of stress and strain, based on what we're trying to accomplish, then we're going to experience different levels of effectiveness of training stimulus. And that's why we aren't seeing the same response from the whole population to the special workout that worked for that special athlete the coach had that one special season or two. And, you know, the load of training is a force towards adaptation. Adaptation happens to limit fatigue in the future when the same load is applied or when a load uh, similar in nature is applied. And response to training stimulus is complex and it's more dynamic than engaging Uh, recovery to get stronger but and you are also seeing that the goal is to be able to not get too stressed like everything is moving towards this idea that like you know more stress is bad and that you don't want to do that and so when you do things that push people into like constantly having to call up an epinephrine you know release to engage in training activities you're giving them these elevated levels of cortisol and like You know, that can't be a good thing. And maybe physiologically, biologically, that's not literally the exact mechanisms that are happening, but that's the relationship that is being observed, is that kind of breakdown over time. And rather than attribute that to mental weakness or lack of character, I think looking at it from a mechanistic standpoint is where we need to be going. And, you know, we refer back then to the fulfillment fatigue and that, you know, as athletes aren't getting the benefits of training, it's happening because their fatigue is interfering with that process and they can't get to that point because the training is too hard for them even if it is physiologically grounded um, in good, you know, training principles. And the conclusions about what should work are extrapolated from studies which themselves are limited in their nature. They don't look at massive populations and they don't show absolute uh, standard black and white findings per se, but then the conclusions, studies show that, right, that famous cultural phrase uh, gets passed along and used. And we're susceptible to that in the same way that we're susceptible to buying mouth guards and thinking they're going to increase our, you know, aerobic capacity to perform exercise. So can we change the fatigue response to training? Is that where we should be thinking? And I think, yeah, we certainly need to make that adjustment. And the way we're going to do that is has to be by changing the training. And I think coaches can't use systems if they want to generate effective results. If we can say, okay, maybe one out of 10 athletes is going to respond in an ideal manner to what is put out there. Um, but a 10% success rate is not good. Your success rate should be 80 to 100%. Everybody has the capacity to do two things. Respond to stimulus and show improvement in consistency and performance. And so 80 to 100% of people should do that. And if they keep doing that, then they should be getting faster over time. So the challenge of good training is to develop what is going to work for each individual. It's possible to assign the same training sessions, but then the sessions are the same in that you're adapting the sessions by giving different individuals different directions. And that's where it's the same because you're trying to accomplish the same goals. And you don't accomplish the same goals with different people unless you're having them do different things. So in difference, there is sameness. And so the ghost, the specter that we've tried to recognize in this series of three episodes is that when you adjust your perspective on this stuff and you shift the way you think about the the data and you Think about the opportunity cost differently, and you say, Well, what could I have the athletes do instead? And instead of saying the athletes could do this or they could not do this, that there are other options that they could be performing in training, then our perception of who is capable of succeeding should also be changing significantly. And, you know, I believe that most people can be successful. And I don't say that from the perspective of idealism, I think that that's like the rational answer to this. You know, even going to an evolutionary biology perspective, like most people can survive and be successful. That is what is clearly the case. And I think applying the concept of fatigue in a more complex manner is key to helping us recognize why these issues um, of, of limiting development come up and questioning, right? What's the value we're giving to the athlete right, in baseline training, Um, and then what is the additional value by giving them these specialized specific pieces of training. And you really need to experiment when you're designing training from what is that aerobic split, that baseline level, and then experiment up from that. And that if you're turning things into, we've now only worked out for eight minutes today because we got so fixated on these doing repeat 400s as fast as we can, that we're sacrificing everything else at that altar. You know, you've sort of, I think, lost your way um, through the wilderness. Definition of an outlier, okay, being a noun here. A person or system situated away or detached from the main body or system. Okay, so this idea of looking at the outlier performers, like... It is the term, right? Still means what it means, okay? Like as a concept, right? Things that are detached from the main body or system don't represent the main body or system. That's what the concept means. And so this idea that it is innovative or brilliant to look at things that don't represent and then reach the conclusions about what needs to be done well that's not the principle of the outlier and i think that we're failing to recognize that the real outlier phenomena is that it's the majority of people who are have been pushed into this inversion of outlierdom where it creates this illusion that you know we need to become those outlier people but that really like the trend of improvement is something that the majority of people should be experiencing And the different responses to fatigue, which are preventing that from happening, are not a sign of a lack of talent or individual ability. They're a sign of mismanaged coaching practice or mismanaged training practice. And we need to manage fatigue to keep athletes in the state where they're going to be able to get enough stress that they're able to adapt. In other words, people need to feel good. And this is where I think the Arthur Lydiard quote, champions are everywhere, can be taken with a much more shrewd and insightful consideration of our potential as people than it might usually seem. Most people can be a lot faster than they think. Thanks for listening to today's episode of Black Cat's Run. This concludes our three-part series, Deus Ex Machina, where we've tried to explore a different perspective on achievers, non-achievers, and what the possibility for success is in the population of athletes writ large. If you've enjoyed this or other episodes, you can check us out on Instagram at Black Cats Run. Upcoming episodes in the future include going more into lactate threshold training strategies and also if recovery is even a real phenomena at all. We'll catch you next time.